Today's readings are from Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end, one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And in the evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sighs that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Second reading is from Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord God and, and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you return to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Thank you, Janet and Johan, and uh, welcome all. It's good to uh, be with you here on Sunday morning. want to say uh, a quick word of welcome for those of you uh, perhaps who may have received one of our uh, mailers that we sent out about a week or so ago. Uh, we sent out a bunch here to the Oak Park area, so if you got one of those and uh, you are joining us for the first time, uh, perhaps this morning, we're glad that you are joining us as well. And um, it is good to be here. If you're recently joining us or if you've been around uh, with us for a while, a regular attender of Calvary, uh, you know that we have been working our way through a sermon series uh, since January, beginning of this year, entitled All Things New, The Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. And in our sermon series, we're laying out the single overarching story of the Bible. And we took a break the last couple of weeks to focus on issues of racial equality and uh, issues of ethnicity, racial justice, which in many ways wasn't really taking a break from our sermon series, but more just like skipping ahead in the story that we're tracking to the relevant part that speaks to the issues of race and ethnicity. And that's part of the beauty of the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible isn't some side story. It's, it's not uh, some religious story that, re that runs parallel with real life. The story of the Bible is the story of the world, which is to say it's the story of reality as we all experience. All the things that really matter in life all the things like hope for the future, our sense of purpose, our ethical framework, our needs for love, for respect, for safety, our understanding of our own identity, how we should think about race and ethnicity. The story of the Bible speaks to all of these things, and that's the beauty of the story. In any case, today we return back uh, to our story, uh, to where we had left off. And I've been thinking the past number of weeks that we're probably getting due uh, for a recap of the story to kind of bring us all back up to speed. And since it's been a few weeks since we've engaged in the story, this seems like a good morning to do that. Now, if you've been around Calvary, you know that I, I like my Lord of the Rings. And uh, at one point in the very first book of the Lord of the Rings, there's the famous Council of Elrond. All my Lord of the Rings fans know about the Council of of Elrond. But in the Council of Elrond, it's kind of a break in the story where uh, Elrond, the elven lord, calls together all the principal characters and he gives them a recounting of the history of the world up to that point in the Lord of the Rings, and then it helps them decide what they're going to do going forward. So it's one of my favorite parts uh, in the trilogy. So I was thinking this morning what we could do is like a Council of Gerald. Right? It's going to be this moment for us to gather together and to recount where we've been in the story up to this point in the story and then decide what that means for us as we go forward. So um, we're going to pick up the story uh, back uh, in Deuteronomy, but as we do, I want to make two principal points coming out of our council, as it were. The first is that sin scatters us and then the second is that grace gathers us. So let's everyone gather around for the Council of Gerald here for a moment. Let's figure out where we are in the story, and then we're going to get into our two points that we can learn from the text that was read for us this morning. All right. So 
you go back to the very beginning in January, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, we saw the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1. In the very beginning, God created the world, He created all the things that we see and experience, and He created them good. In fact, He created them very good. And humanity was created in Genesis chapter 2 as the pinnacle of all that God had made, and He ordained humanity to function in the world as priests, kings, and queens, mediating the life of God. God breathed into them the breath of life, His own life, breathed into them the breath of life, and then they were to mediate that life out to all of creation. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that Satan enviously desired the lordship of the world for himself, and so he deceived Adam and Eve at the one point of command that they were to obey from God, got them to disobey God, and Satan stole the world's throne from humanity. So humanity is defrocked, as it were, of their royal priesthood. They are cast out of the garden. They are cut off from the provisions of God, and they are doomed now to die. And all of creation, since they were the priests, kings, and queens of the world, suffers with them. The whole world begins to die. But in Genesis 3, even in the midst of this climax, or this, uh, in this crisis, rather, a promise of redemption is given. Though everything seems lost, all is not lost. God promises that one day a son from the line of Eve will arise, and he will overthrow Satan and his tyranny. He will bring humanity back to the world's throne, and he will lead to the healing of the earth and the restoration of humanity. Well, many years pass with this promised child of Eve not arriving, and we get to Genesis 15, and we get to the birth and the calling of Abraham. Abraham is called out from among the nations. He is the first patriarch of promise, and through him, God says, will come the Israelite people, and through the Israelite people will come this promised deliverer, this son of Eve. Well, the age of the patriarchs begins, and we see that in Genesis 15 all the way through the end of Genesis. The promise is passed from Abraham to his son Isaac. It's passed from Isaac down to his son Jacob. It's passed from Jacob down to his 12 sons. And of all the 12 sons, his fourth son, Judah, is chosen as the one through whom the promised deliverer will come. Well, the people of Israel continue to grow, and they become many and numerous. They eventually take refuge from a famine down in the land of Egypt, where they eventually end up enslaved to the Egyptians. And so 400 years later, God sends the prophet Moses down into the land of Egypt to rescue his people. Moses redeems by the power of God the Israelites from Pharaoh, which prefigures the coming redemption of humanity from the tyranny of Satan. Moses then leads the Israelites out of slavery, and he is taking them to a promised homeland in the land of Canaan. And at this time, we have the gift of the law that is given. God drops the law down from Mount Sinai. The law is a great gift or a great covenant that God makes with His people. And this covenant that God makes with His people prefigures or points to the healing that God is going to bring 
to the whole world. But then as the people get all the way to the borders of their promised homeland, there is rebellion, a place called Kadesh Barnea. And the Israelites are not faithful to the new covenant that they've just begun with God. They rebel against God and they refuse to enter into the promised land because they're concerned about the inhabitants being too intimidating. And so God then sends them back into the wilderness where they wander for 40 years. And God says that that generation will die in the wilderness and then he will bring their children back to the promised land. And so after 40 years of wandering, when all of that generation has died, God then brings the children back to the borders of the promised land for another run. And that catches us up with where we are in the story today. As we approach today's passage, the children of Israel have returned to the border of their promised land. It's the end of 40 years of wandering in the desert, and they are going to be given a second chance to enter into the promised land. And this is what the book of Deuteronomy, in many ways, really is all about, which is where we find ourselves today. Deutero, it's the second, or it's the second, it's the second giving of the law. And so much of what we see in the book of Deuteronomy is uh, in many ways an expansion or a repeat of the law that had been given back in the days of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus. And so we have here this second giving of the law to the children of the Israelites, right? So the Israelites, the parents, they got the first giving of the law. They all died in the wilderness. So now Moses is giving a second giving of the law, this Deuteronomy, here as they're about to go in to the promised land. And towards the end of Deuteronomy, after Moses has re-given all the laws, in chapter 28, Moses reminds the people about the terms of the covenant. We can sum it up as follows. If the people of Israel are faithful to the covenant, then God will bless them in the land to which they are going. If, though, they neglect the covenant, they choose to go their own ways, they don't follow what God has said, God will bring increasing hardship into their lives in an effort to draw them back to himself and to the covenant. So there will be kind of increasing parental discipline, as it were, consequences that become increasingly more difficult. If the Israelites persist in rebellion, God will unleash the final covenantal curse. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. Moses is warning the people about the nuclear option, as it were, God's final covenantal curse that he will bring upon them if they persist in rebellion, which takes us to chapter 28, verses 64 through 68. Moses warns the Israelites what will happen if they persist in disregarding the covenant? They will be, as we've read, scattered among all the peoples from one end of earth to another. They will be scattered among all the peoples from one end of earth to another. Now, bear in mind in our recounting of the story, this is how, in essence, they began. When God chose Abraham, Abraham was just one more wandering nomadic shepherd among a world of wandering nomadic shepherds. 
And in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, God tells the people that He didn't set His love upon them and make them a nation because they were more numerous than any other people, which is to say it wasn't because they were so great or so important or so of such consequence that God chose them. Rather, it was God's choosing of them that gave them their import in consequence. Nor did God choose them because they were of a more refined moral quality. So, yes, you're small, but you're really kind of better than all the other nations. They weren't really better than all the other peoples of the world. In Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 16, Moses reminds the people that God chose them while their hearts were yet uncircumcised and they were stubborn. So when God comes to them and makes them a nation, it's not because they're more numerous and important. It's not because they're of greater moral quality. They are basically just like all the other nations of the world. The Israelites began as stubborn and uncircumcised, just like all the other people, yet God chose them. He chose them and redeemed them, and now He has brought them to the borders of their own homeland. And Moses is saying, if you reject God's grace, you're going to end up right back where you started, scattered among all the peoples of the world. The final nuclear curse of the covenant would be banishment to the ends of the earth. It would mean the decreation of the nation of Israel, as it were. What they had become as a people, God had pulled them out from amongst all the peoples of the earth. They would be sent back into all the peoples of the earth, scattered back into the far reaches of the world. And then look what will happen in the verses that follow. Banished from God's presence, banished out into the world, they will have, in verse 64, they will, they will turn to other gods, gods that they, that they did not know in their homeland, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but gods made of wood and stone. And worshiping these other gods in other lands, in verse 65, they will find no respite, no rest. They will have a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a languishing soul. And then verse 66, their lives will hang in doubt. They shall live in dread day and night and have no assurance of their lives. And then look at verse 67. In the morning, God says, you will say, if only it were evening. And at evening, you will say, oh, if only it were morning. The whole picture here of the Israelites' situation in the land of their uh, scattering, in the land of their captivity, is one that, frankly, is exhausting. And then look at verse 68, where we get to kind of the, the nadir of this whole situation. The Israelites will go back to Egypt, where God has just taken them from, where they had been enslaved, and they will try to sell themselves. They'll be so desperate, they'll be so without recourse that they will try to sell themselves as slaves to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians won't want them. That's how bad it will get. It will get so bad that their lives will be in total distress and they will not even be able to sell themselves as slaves. Can you imagine the humiliation of that situation here? The picture is of complete and utter ruin. 
So the Israelites are warned ahead of time that rejecting God and going their own way will lead to the unraveling and the disintegration of their community. When we humans cut ourselves off from the life of God and choose to go our own way, the result is the scattering or the disintegration of our lives. And so here's the first lesson that we get from Israel's life here in this passage. Very often, the trials that we face are not merely trials, but consequences that we have brought upon ourselves. Very often, the trials that we face are not merely trials, but are in fact consequences that we have brought upon ourselves. So when I was uh, a graduate, undergraduate student, uh, I had to write a, 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 quite a few papers. And I recall uh, writing a paper for my class on Genesis. And uh, I had to try to work out, uh, you know, I had to work out in this particular paper, I was working out the relationship between God's sovereignty and human's responsibility. And I had this great insight that I had gleaned from the story of Joseph and Judah. And so I wrote it all out. I was very proud of this paper. I mean, it was, uh, as you know, it was, uh, it was as brilliant as I am. And so you can imagine, right, you know. So I turn it in, and I got like a C plus. And I was like, a C plus? This was an awesome paper. And I felt that that was a trial because I had worked very hard on that paper, and I had tried very hard on that paper, and clearly my teacher just, he just had it out for me, Right. But then my senior year, it was the last semester, and uh, I, was taking, um, uh, I was taking Isaiah, a class on Isaiah. And uh, last semester, I was taking quite a few classes uh, to finish on time. I was engaged uh, to Jill at the time. And I got to confess, I was not giving it my undivided attention. And we had a final paper that was due in the class. And uh, for this paper, uh, I put it off and I put it off and I put it off until it was due like the next day. I tried to cram for it. I stayed up till like four in the morning. It wasn't very good. I turned it in and I also got like a C plus on the paper. And that, I would say, was a consequence, right? I brought that upon myself, right? There are times when we do things that we get a result that's not connected to what we've done, right? It's just, it is, we don't want to call it luck because we, God is sovereign over all things, but it's, it's a trial that has come into our life that's not connected to the actions that we've taken. But then there are other times where we encounter suffering or hardship that are not just kind of rotten luck of providence, as it were, but it is consequences of actions that we have done. When we find ourselves in distressing trials, when we are being scattered, as it were, we need to candidly and honestly assess whether what we are experiencing is a trial, just a trial, or whether it's really a consequence. Are there any areas of your life that are scattering, as it were? Maybe your whole life is being scattered, but maybe there's a particular area of your life that is being scattered, are there any areas of your life, like the Israelites, where you have no respite, 
You have no rest. You just can't rest about these areas of your life where your hope for the future in this area of your life hangs in dread night and day. Do you spend the whole day just wishing you could get to bed so you could go to sleep, but then you just toss and turn all night dreading the next day that is going to come? Perhaps you feel this way in relation to your parenting. Perhaps you feel this way in relation to your marriage perhaps in relation to your finances or to your employment or perhaps a a relationship that you have. Trials are an inevitable part of life that God often allows into our lives to strengthen us. It is part of God's care in our lives to allow difficult things to come because He wants to strengthen us. And it's not because of anything that we have done wrong. It's not because of mistakes that we made. These aren't consequences. We could be doing everything exactly right, and God will still allow trials to come into our life to strengthen us. Think of the story of Job. Job, God said, by his own words, was righteous and blameless and upright. And yet God allowed a trial to come into his life to strengthen Job and to grow him up and to make him even stronger. Think of Jesus. Clearly, the cross was not a consequence for some misdeed that Jesus had done. But God brought the cross into Jesus' life, and the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus actually benefited, learned from the cross. He grew from the cross, and of course, we benefit from the cross, right? Those were trials, Job and Jesus, and all throughout the Bible we can see trials. Those weren't consequences for misdeeds, So I'm not saying this morning that just because a certain area of your life is difficult, or maybe your whole life is a moment of stress, I'm not saying that because of that, that that's a sure sign that you've done something wrong, but I am asking you to think about it. Perhaps your distress is because you're not living faithfully to what God is asking of you. Imagine the Israelites getting themselves out into the far reaches of the world, no rest, life hanging in, the, in, the, in doubt, day and night. And they just saw it as rotten luck, that they didn't connect what was going on in their distress to their actions of disobedience that had brought them to that place of distress. Perhaps, perhaps your distress is because you are not living faithfully to what God is asking you to do. Perhaps your family is coming apart because you're a workaholic. Perhaps your marriage is coming apart because you refuse to forgive and you hold a grudge. Perhaps your your employment is unraveling because you tend to just phone it in. If you have a relation, if you have a great, if you've had a great relationship, for instance, with all of your bosses, except that one tyrannical jerk, that's probably, maybe, likely on them. But if every boss you've ever had is a tyrannical jerk, that's probably more about you. If you have 10 kids and one goes off the rails, that's probably on them. But if you have 10 kids and they all go off the rails, that might be on you. So don't be too quick to call everything that happens in your life a trial because it might be 
that it's a consequence. At some point, we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves if the person staring back at us is the cause of the problem. We need to honestly assess whether the difficulty we're facing is a trial or a consequence. Now, maybe you honestly don't know. I think this is certainly true at times in my own life. It's probably likely true in your own life at times too. You honestly don't know. You're not sure why your life or a particular area of your life seems to be unraveling. Let me encourage you, if you find yourself in that situation, like it's not, it's not super clear whether it's you, whether it's the circumstance, the other person, you don't know if it's a trial, is it a consequence, it's not easy to figure out, right? I think we can find ourselves in those places at times. Let me encourage you, if you find yourself in that place, to take some time and to get alone with God and ask Him, because He knows the answer to that question. I mean, if there's anyone that knows whether this is a trial or a consequence, it's God. So you got to ask Him. Maybe you think you're living faithfully into your responsibilities as a good Christian, and maybe indeed you are. Maybe that would be what God will say. This is just it's a difficult time. You're going to have to just keep pressing forward. I'm with you. But perhaps upon closer Spirit-inspired inspection, you will see that there are some places of compromise in your life that you had not seen before. Ask God to reveal Himself to you. Ask God to reveal yourself to you. Perhaps in the spirit of Psalm 139, the psalmist writes this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there are any grievous ways in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You've got to ask God, and God will make it clear to you. But maybe He'll make it clear to you in a moment through the Holy Spirit. Maybe He'll make it, a clear, make it clear to you uh, through other means. Perhaps you would need to talk to a trusted counselor and get some input from them or a trusted friend. Perhaps you want to talk with me or one of the other pastors. It helps to get outside insight because sometimes we're looking at what seems to be a trial. It's Everyone else around us can tell it's actually a consequence because of choices that we're making, but we're the last person to be able to see that it's a consequence, right? And if there's something that we're doing that's contributing to the difficulty, then we're, we should want to know that so that we can then move towards God and receive His blessing. Perhaps you will see, if you look into it more deeply, that there are deep-seated subconscious, subconscious even, patterns of behavior that you didn't even know existed and that the disintegration of that area of your life is really, actually, it's a severe mercy from God because God is allowing that area of your life to unravel so that you will then look towards that area, examine your life in fresh ways, and see how you can bring your life back into alignment with God. But if you only treat it as a trial, and you refuse to even ask the question of whether it's a consequence, you're perhaps letting this moment pass in a way that could bring growth. If you do find out that these moments of suffering in your life really actually are consequences of your own making, let me encourage you not to despair, to not give up even when all hope seems gone, which brings us to the second point 
our second lesson for this morning. When sin scatters us, grace gathers us. Moses goes on to say in chapter 30, we're going to kind of move ahead here to chapter 30. He goes on to say in chapter 30, well, actually, I'm going to say this. At the beginning, uh, in chapter 29, then on into chapter 30, Moses goes on to say that the curse, the final nuclear curse of the covenant, will in fact fall upon the nation of Israel. It'll be many years hence, but it will come to pass. Look at verses uh, 29, 2 through 4. Moses can already see this of the people. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But look here at verse 4. Moses sees this. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Moses is like, you still haven't quite got it. You don't fully grasp or understand all that God has done for you. And then in verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 1, Moses says this, and when all these things come upon you, he's listed all about all the curses of the covenant. He's talked about the final scattering, being driven to the far reaches of the earth. And he says, and when these things have come upon you, when these things have come upon you, Moses can already see that the people will not remain faithful to the covenant. They will go their own way and the final curse, the nuclear curse of the covenant will fall upon them. They will be scattered by their sin to the far reaches of the earth. They will be driven from the land. But Moses then says in chapter 30, when you are driven from the land, that is not the end. It's not the end. In that same vision by which Moses sees their eventual apostasy, he also sees their eventual return. He exhorts them in verse 2 of chapter 30 that when they find themselves scattered by their sin, he exhorts them to return to the Lord and obey his voice with all your heart and all your soul, and then the Lord our God will restore you. And when they do, God will regather them, Moses says, from the nations to which they had been driven, and he will bring them back to their land. Look at verse, chapter 30, verses 3 through 4. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. There is no place that sin, as it were, can scatter you, that God can't regather you. Look, uh, oh, and then look at uh, chapter 30, verses 6 through 7, which I think is perhaps the most comforting word in this chapter of all. Look here at verses 6, uh, chapter 30, verses 6 through 7. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and your enemies who persecuted you. So God is saying, listen, Moses is saying, listen, God's going to uh, scatter you to the far reaches of the world, but when you turn back to him and repent, 
He will pull you back together. And when he pulls you back together, he will circumcise your heart. He will circumcise your heart so that you will love him with your heart. And then listen, so that you will live. The stipulations of the covenant will still be in effect. All right, so this is not an absolving of the covenant. The stipulations will still be in effect. Faithlessness will still bring discipline and cursing, and faithfulness will still bring blessing. The difference between the time of Moses and the time of the restoration that is promised, the difference is that in the day of redemption, God will not only renew the terms of the covenant, but he will give the people power to keep the terms so that they will live. Here in this passage, we see the first prophetic witness of what will come to be known as the new covenant. So the, the New Testament will speak of the new covenant. And the, the Jewish prophets in the days of exile, which of which Moses is speaking, they also will speak of the new covenant. And this is what they're speaking of, this same thing that Moses is talking about. When the Israelites repent after their sin has scattered them, God will circumcise their hearts so that they will be careful to keep the terms of the covenant. Verse 8, And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments that I command you today. Then the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands. What sin has scattered, God's grace will regather. The grace of God in the life of Israel is seen not in God's willingness to lower the bar down to, the, to Israel's level. That's, that's not really what God's grace is seen here as. But rather, God's grace is seen in his willingness to raise Israel up to the level of the bar. God will regather his people and empower them to keep the covenant. So here's our second lesson. The human capacity to delight God comes from God. The human capacity to keep God's covenant comes from God. So in my uh, house, I have handed off the lawn mowing responsibilities to my sons. But imagine that one day I sent uh, my son out to mow the lawn and he got out there and there was no gasoline in the mower. Right? So he, he's given an assignment to do, as it were. He's given a command to do, to go out and mow the lawn. But there's actually no ability to fulfill the command because there's no power to do the thing that he's been asked to do. Right? It doesn't work that way, right? I supply the lawnmower and I supply the gasoline for my kid to be able to fulfill the thing that I want him to do, which is mow the lawn. God doesn't just give us the commands to do. He gives us the capacity, the power to fulfill those commands. The covenant that humanity needs with God is not simply a list of commands. We also need the capacity, the power to fulfill those commands. That's what grace is. It's capacity. And this is really what the story of the Bible is all about. All things new, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. It's the restoration of the capacity of the world to be what God intended it to be all along. Think back to the very beginning of our story with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not serve God 
by their own breath. Right? When they were created, they were not created independent from God. They were created to draw upon and to breathe the breath of God. Even before they sinned, they needed God's grace to be what God had created them to be. The term grace is in many ways just another term for gift. Right? We don't just need a gift after we've messed up. We need a gift as creatures to be able to do what God has called us to do. Adam and Eve needed God's life in their lungs in order to extend His life out into the world. Where do you need God's divinely and graciously given capacity this morning? Well, I'll help you with your answer. It starts with an E. It rhymes with beverywhere. Exactly. We need God's grace everywhere in our lives. There is no area of our life in which we don't need God's grace. We need God's energy, His life, His capacity for every area of our life. That's the whole point of grace, this great gift. It enables us to be what God has created us to be. But maybe there is a particular place in your life this morning where you are acutely aware of the fact that you need God's grace, His capacity to be what He is calling you to be. Perhaps it's the same area of your life that you were thinking of earlier that's been scattered by sin. If sin has scattered you or it's scattered a particular area of your life, then repent of that sin and let God's grace regather you and empower you to be what He has created you to be. The regathering power of grace doesn't always happen all at once. Sometimes God works miracles of grace, total transformations of our lives in a moment, like flicking on a light switch. And I've seen that in the lives of others. I've experienced that at times in my own life. This can be especially true when someone first comes to Christ for the, from that first moment, those first encounters with grace. Sometimes God's grace brings new life, though, like like the light coming on with a dimmer switch, or like a child growing. One day you wake up and you look around and you're surprised to realize how far you've come. And grace kind of just takes these incremental steady steps forward. Either way, God's grace begins the sure work of recreating His people, of recreating humanity into the image of Christ, enabling us to keep covenant. The Apostle Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, he's talking about this power of grace. Listen to what he says. The grace of God has appeared, and he's talking about how the grace of God in particular has appeared through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the conduit through which God's grace comes. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace re intersects with our lives to allow us to live out a life of good and beautiful works. And it allows us to live in a way that is faithful 
and faithfully expecting God's provision of Jesus Christ in the last day. God's grace comes to us in many ways. It comes to us miraculously, as it were, through the Holy Spirit. It comes to us miraculously through the Holy Spirit, through the church, through the relationships we have in the church, the preaching of God's Word, through the worship, through the Scriptures as we read on our own or we hear the Scriptures read. There are many ways in which God's grace intersects our lives. The Puritans, uh, the old Puritans used to speak about putting one's self in the way of grace. And they use the analogy of like setting out a bucket. Like if it's a time of drought, you can't make it rain. But, but you can't anticipate the rain. And so you would set out a bucket, as it were, in the dry riverbed so that when the rain came and the water came into the dry riverbed, it would collect in the bucket, right? You'd put yourself in the way of grace so that when God sent the rain, when the grace came, you'd be ready to collect it. You can't make it rain. You can't, God's grace is not like in a lamp and you just rub it three times and God pops out and says, what three wishes of grace do you want? It doesn't work like that. I wish it worked like that, right? But you can put yourself in the way of grace so that you are humbly and contritely there when God's grace begins to flow. The Israelites were scattered, or would be, later in the story. We're getting a foreshadowing of what's going to come. The Israelites would be scattered by their sin, but they would also eventually be regathered by God's grace. So maybe you need that too this morning. If your sin has scattered you, let God's grace regather you. Close out by a word to my Christian brothers and sisters and then also a word to any non-Christian friends that are listening this morning. If you're a Christian already, if you are already a member of the covenant and you are a partaker already of God's grace and you find yourself in a situation where your life is coming unraveled and you're pretty sure it's not just a trial, it's actually a consequence because you're not doing what you should be doing in that area of life. Then repent as you're able, as necessary, of the places in your life where you've gone your own way. Receive God's free forgiveness in Christ. Just receive the, he, he doesn't catch him by surprise. He's not shocked or aghast. He knows our frailty and our weaknesses. Receive the free forgiveness in Christ and then put yourself in the way of God's grace. Find the places where God's grace flows and put yourself there with your bucket, as it were, ready to receive it when it does. Reach out to God in faith that He hasn't abandoned you. Even if your sin has scattered you to the furthest reaches of the earth, God's grace can regather you. God's grace will regather you as you reach out to Him in faith and contrition. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you haven't made the great exchange of your life for Christ's life. And a lot of that's really what Christianity is in so many ways. It's saying, here's my life. It isn't what it should be. I need Christ's life because his life is what a human life should be. And I give my life up to take Christ's life to myself. If you haven't done that, you're still trying to like make your own life work, right? Without ex- receiving Christ's life. If you're still the captain of your own ship or 
Perhaps you're only hearing about God's grace for the first time even this morning. Then I encourage you to start in the same way that Christians have to continue. We begin and we continue by faith and repentance and turning from our sin. And then be baptized into the body of Christ. Receive the free forgiveness of your sins and let God's grace regather the broken pieces of your life. There is no brokenness that God's mercy can't forgive. There is no brokenness that God's grace can't fix. The Bible tells us, the words of the Apostle Paul, that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. There's nothing else we can do. We can't fix ourselves. We can't, we can't make our lives what they should be. We can only confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the one that we need. And we need to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That's the power of new life coming into my life. Even today, this morning, let me encourage you to call out to God Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Enter into the covenant family by grace through faith, and let God begin the sure work of regathering your life until it is complete in the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you gave us Christ, who when we were scattered by sin to the far reaches of the earth, even to the heights of heaven and the depths of hell, you have regathered us. You have brought us back to yourself in Christ, and you are now engaged in the sure work of making us to be all that you've designed us to be. Help us to hold to you in faith, to repent as we need to, Help us not to confuse trials and consequences. Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep growing more in you, stretching our hands out to you in faith. Lord, you redeem us. You give us uh, breath in our lungs that is your breath. We live by it. Help us to recognize our need of you and depend upon you for all things. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.